Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast, stories about how literature sounds. My name is Hannah McGregor, and each month I'll be bringing you different stories of Canadian literary history and our contemporary responses to it, created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, there's a name you might be familiar with. I mention it every episode, that has so far been almost entirely off mic. I'm talking about Stacy Copeland, our podcast project manager and supervising producer. Stacy is a media producer and Joseph Armand Bombardier PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University School of Communication in Vancouver. During her master's work in communication and culture, she co-founded Femme Radio, a Toronto-based feminist community radio collective. And of course, she helps us make this podcast every month. This month on the Spoken Web podcast, I sat down with Stacy. well, we Zoomed, to talk about what queer media sounds like, the feminist history of radio and podcast production, and how archival audio can help to build intergenerational intimacies. Here's me and Stacy with episode nine of the Spoken Web podcast, Producing Queer Media. Why don't we start at the beginning with how you ended up being a person who researches radio and podcasts and sound? Oh, gosh. Well, I was born. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, the way that I kind of look back on the start of everything was just the amount of media consumption I did as a teenager was a big start mm-hmm. of it. So I was actually uh, a YouTuber. For a while when I was a teenager, um, which got me into uh, doing covers, like posting covers of me playing guitar online, um, and then eventually joining a couple of uh, LGBTQ queer teen collaboration groups. So we'd have like, you know, I was Wednesday and my friend Daniel was on Tuesdays and we'd have like Micah on Fridays and those kind of classic YouTube community forums. So this is you say classic, classic. but I am too, I am too too old to know any of these things. <laughs> oh, is that how it works? Great. So yeah, back when YouTube was more um, community based and less lots of very high production videos, uh, there was a lot of these like collab channels that people were a part of, and so that's what really got me into being more creative with sound wow. and with video. And then I actually wanted to go to university to make music videos originally. Um, I was way more a visual person than I was a sound person. Okay. And so I applied to the RTA School of Media, which is a four-year undergraduate program at Ryerson University in Toronto. And it kind of gives you a, a great background. It used to be called Radio and Television Arts. Now is Media Production because who would want to only learn about radio and television these days? This is old-timey media for hipsters. That's what they teach you. (laughs) So I I joined that program, and in the first year, 
you actually take audio production courses as your first courses rather than video. Um, And so that kind of gave me a taste for radio production in particular, and I definitely caught the bug. And so from that point, I started taking all of the audio production courses, got an internship at Indy 88, which is a radio station in Toronto in my fourth year, and started doing contract production with them for a couple of years uh, because they're great. And then it also brought in like my music interests and my yeah. my hipster identity at the time. Uh, <laughs> do you have do you have a sense of why it is the audio production ended up appealing to you so much when you had been so focused on the visual to start? I think at that point it was just because it brought in my interest in music in ways that I found more intimate and more relatable. And I got to work much more closely with bands and with artists than you get to as part of a a much larger video production team. You really get to be one-on-one and close up in person uh, with the people that you're working with in a different way. And it's kind of like this family when you're working in a group of people on a on an audio production, a very tight-knit family. And so from that, I ended up working as a, a lab assistant and production staff at Ryerson for, for a while, for about a year after my undergrad, and that gave me the teaching bug. And so uh, I applied for grad school because I said, well, how can I do this forever? <laughs> <laughs> That is how so many of us get here. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what really brought me into doing um, my master's at Ryerson York in ComCult, Mm -hmm. uh, which brought in the the teaching. What's ComCult? ComCult, right. Uh, Communication and culture. Okay. That program was great. (laughs) It really introduced me more to theory um, and awoke my inner feminist a lot more um, Mm -hmm. in thinking about my audio production and my approach to it. And so that's why I ended up deep diving into feminist theory and sound uh, and how they relate and how we can think about it. And what does, what is the experience that women are having with their voices in audio production? So that's what I ended up doing for my MA. And then of course, PhD work now is just the next chapter. (laughs) Literally and figuratively. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting to me, the ways that people stumble across feminist theory for the first time, including those of us who who might have sort of looking back been like, ah, I was a latent feminist that whole time, but didn't have the language to articulate myself as such, or didn't have any particular sense of what feminism meant beyond like, I am a woman and think I should be allowed to do things, <laughs> which is, you know, a legitimate uh, standpoint for feminism. My first encounter with feminist theory came through a theology course that I took at the University of Edinburgh and I read Judith Butler for the first time, like against the gospel of Mark. So it was just this real, like, like it was this weird way that I sort of entered into this theory, but then it's like, it gets a hold of you and you're like, I don't know. I, I remember after reading, uh, Gender Trouble for the first time that it was the first theory book that I had been desperate to tell everybody about. Mm-hmm. Like that it broken open my brain so entirely that I just wanted to grab everybody and be like, did you hear? Gender's a performance. <laughs> I had no idea, but I'm so excited by that. So let's talk a little bit more about gender and voice. Yeah. Like what, what does, I mean, I know, but I'm going to go ahead and ask the naive <laughs> question. What did gender and voice have to do with each other? Oh gosh. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a casual question. Aren't we all just people? Uh, at the end of the day so 
I mean, Judith Butler is a great a great place to start. That was definitely one of my foundational texts too, and one that got me real riled up because Butler doesn't talk a ton about the voice um, or about mm. sound as part of our construction of gender, which is fair. Mm. That was not very in fashion at the time, you might say. Yeah, I know my supervisor Melina Drumeva says this often that we've really hit this sonic turn in -hmm. the academy and in humanities Mm. and social sciences. And what that means is we're really getting awoken to this idea of how our voices carry so much of our identity and our experience. Um, And it's often, if people aren't seeing us in person for the first time, it's the first thing they notice about us. And if they're meeting us in person for the first time, it's the second thing they notice about us. So it's something that really changes uh, people's perceptions. And Mm -hmm. when you start to think about what your voice says about you, it also kind of opens up these questions of the different voices that we have in different contexts as well, and how gendered Mm -hmm. that can often be. So part of my MA work was looking at particularly women's experiences uh, with their own voices in radio in Toronto and how they felt about it. Did they think it was high pitched? Did they think it was low pitched? Um, Did they feel like they had a radio voice? What is a radio voice anyways? Mm -hmm. And what I found was for the most part, women working in the radio industry do have lower or what would be considered almost androgynous um, registers and pitches in their voices. Mm -hmm. And they may not necessarily present their voice that way in person, but they do when they're on the microphone. And I I mean, even as scholars or as speakers, we often do that too. We have a different vocal presentation um, that often skews lower, which also translates to skewing as more masculine presenting, at least in Western culture. So even just there, we can think about some of the gendered aspects of voice. One of the Many terrible jobs that I had as an undergraduate was working for a Rogers call center. Mm -hmm. And I was maybe six months into that job before I noticed that when I was on calls with men, I pitched my voice full half octave higher. Mm -hmm. Like it just went right up here. Like, hi, my name is Hannah and I'm calling from Rogers Wireless. And I just like I it was it was deeply unconscious. And my voice has pitched lower I think both naturally and through training as I've aged, mm-hmm. that's that's fairly common. In singing, we learn this, that our voices don't sort of fully settle into their lifelong register until our 30s. And I started off singing much like I was a soprano when I was a kid and I sing bass now. But I will never forget a feminist mentor of mine telling me that I would have less difficulty in the classroom than other women my age because I had a naturally lower voice. Mm-hmm. And that it's like both as simple and as complicated as that, that when your voice is lower, it registers as more masculine, which is synonymous with more authoritative. And so it will be easier to make people listen to you and take you seriously because your voice is lower. Yeah. And this is a common experience. Like when you have oh. these conversations with women, uh, it's often something that they they have experienced in one way or another or have talked to another friend about having this experience. Mm-hmm. So. We can think of, I know a lot of people probably watched Love is Blind recently on Netflix. I did not, but continue your point. As a a nerdy, like, gender and voice scholar, I was like, oh, a show where they meet and they don't see each other in person. They just have to fall in love with their voice. (laughs) 
Okay. Yep. I see why this would have interested you. There's this one character, and there's a great article online um, when the show first came out by Anne Karpf, who's also a feminist voice and radio scholar and critic. And Mm -hmm. it was talking about how this one particular character on the show actually has this sort of baby voice that she puts on whenever she's Mm. speaking to the person that she's dating. Uh, And it actually pitches more baby and higher when they're in person rather than when she's behind the screen. So right there is like this very fascinating demonstration for everyone uh, watching Love is Blind in the way that we change our vocal performance and interaction depending on who we're talking to because she wasn't doing this to her voice when she was just talking to the other women um, in the social off time that they had it was only in these particular situations and so it brought up these really great conversations online around baby voice um, and the long history of that voice we think of characters like Marilyn Monroe and mm-hmm. why do we think that's sexy? Why does anyone think baby voice is sexy, right? <laughs> yeah. So it brings up these really interesting conversations around how we identify what's sexy, what's masculine, what's feminine. Um, mm-hmm. Is it a, a way to be more submissive uh, in having this kind of youthful sounding voice? And and it comes mm-hmm. into biology, like you said. As we age, we tend to have a lower voice. And that also translates to mm-hmm. our understanding of what voices have authority as well, um, both men and mm-hmm. people who are older. And so we then hit this like youth demo using baby voice to be sexy because it's a little submissive. And then also having vocal fry, which I know I have a ton of oh. because we're our oh. voices are trying to hit those lower registers to seem authoritative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could scream about vocal fry until the cats come home. One of my early sort of personal encounters with uh, how much I was going to fixate on gendered voices in podcasting was Marcel, my co- the co-host of Which Please, and I were invited on to um, CBC Edmonton AM okay. to talk about gender in podcasting, in particular to talk about why there's so many fewer women in podcasting than men, though that has changed. I mean, this was like a good five or six years mm-hmm. ago. That demographic is shifting yeah. decisively. Hot conversation um, in like 2014. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. So it was a hot conversation at the time. It was like podcasting is 75% men. What's going on? What are the barriers to access? And so we came on this radio show to talk about this. And we were talking about how one of the barriers to access for, for women is the policing of women's voices. Mm-hmm. That the way that women talk is always wrong. And that we were talking about that iconic This American Life story. If you don't have something nice to say, say it all in caps, where they talk about how the top form of hate mail they get is about the voices of their young women producers. Yeah. Like nothing makes their listeners as mad as the sound of a young woman with vocal fry, like just (laughs) makes them lose their fucking minds. And we were talking about how there's sort of this pseudoscientific concern trolling attached to it. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, it's bad for your voice. And that's why you need to stop. Vocal fry wrecks your voice. We're really just worried about you, which every woman has experienced somebody using this kind of like pseudo medical concern trolling to control us. (laughs) Precisely. It is absolutely gaslighting with a thin veneer of the medical on top of it. (laughs) And the host was like, oh, well, actually vocal fry is extremely bad for your voice though. And then just launched into, like, mansplaining vocal fry to us. We, like, lost our goddamn minds. <laughs> what is happening here? Anyway, 
all of our listeners listened to the segment and then were really mean to him on Twitter all day. And it was very satisfying. Yeah, I mean, Vocal Fry is really fascinating that way. And you have to ask the question, well, who is being, you know, bothered by Vocal Fry? What's the demographic behind that? Because it's very unlikely that it's younger women who also have vocal fry. There is yeah, the argument <laughs> that it is a millennial and Gen Y just vocalization, the same way that we had Valley Girl as a kind of slang and vocalization in mm-hmm. um, generations before us. So there's part of what I, I found in my MA work was that a lot of younger women actually really enjoy the sound of vocal fry because to them it sounds like them it's it's more like having a conversation with a friend rather than a a formal radio broadcast presenter you know yeah yeah and i wonder if the embrace of things like vocal fry is one of the sonic differences between radio and podcasting that podcasting is sort of emerged as a space where in fact because there's a younger demographic who are hosting sometimes and because there's a sort of casualness behind a lot of the recording settings that you are more likely to hear vocal fry on a podcast than on the radio and that becomes part of what makes it feel like a cozier medium Mm -hmm. yeah and it's easier for vocal fry to come across too because there's not as much high compression on the voice Um, you're maybe listening or most likely listening on headphones versus on a blasting car stereo so even Mm. when you maybe have a vocal fry voice i've had this experience and are doing a radio broadcast it doesn't necessarily come through because it's smoothed out and compressed versus on a podcast where we kind of let things breathe a little bit more because it is more conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think podcasting, yeah, it's, it's definitely more conversational, but it's also produced differently. There's a different mm-hmm. logic behind it often. Oh, I love that. Okay, let's fast forward now to that to that next chapter. Tell me about what your research is about now. Oh, gosh. So I just pre- presented my and defended my proposal a couple weeks ago. So it's fairly fresh in my mind. Um, but <laughs> And still in, in that pure form before you've actually started trying to write it. Yeah, exactly. But it's just a, just a perfect idea. <laughs> I'm in the ethics stage now um, and quickly realizing how much work I have ahead of me in the next year. Mm-hmm. But it's exciting. So Basically, the the one-liner or the elevator pitch version is mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm looking to ask the question, how is gender and sexuality communicated through audio media? Specifically, mm. asking that question in relation to audio produced by queer women in different mm-hmm. decades. So the two kind of foundational shows that I'm looking at are The Lesbian Show, which was on Vancouver's co-op radio in the 1970s, 1979, all the way into the early 2000s. So quite a few decades on air. Um, And then Dykes on Mics, which is a community radio show out of Montreal, CKUT. And these are kind of my foundational shows of thinking about the uh, production of audio and radio by queer women for queer women, talking Mm -hmm. about queer identity. And from these shows, the the goal is to create an intergenerational analysis where I interview these these, uh, particular producers and then make linkages to contemporary podcasts that are making content either connected to or influenced by or reflecting back to these, these foundational shows. So, for instance, I'm sure a lot of people, if they're into 
queer podcasting or just like more intimate feminist podcasting have listened to The Heart. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. a great podcast. But what a lot of people don't know unless they dig deeper is that podcast, The Heart, was actually a community radio show, Audio Smut, on CKUT at the same (laughs) community radio station as Dykes on Mics. So making these kind of linkages to where are we finding these groups of feminist and queer community who are making audio either in the same spaces or together or are influencing each other? And how does that transition from historical understandings of community radio and how that was produced Mm -hmm. into podcasting today? So with shows like The Heart, there's another great one, um, Asking For It by the same collective, which is Mermaid Palace. And uh, there's quite a few out there. There's there's Queer Public, which is another great podcast out there. Also someone uh, from Montreal, CKUT background, who's producing that. So making these kind of connections early on made me wonder what the intergenerational overlap is in mm-hmm. e- the experience and underlying desires in producing queer media as queer mm-hmm. women. Who is it for? What's the intention behind it? What does it sound like? What's yeah. queer media anyways? And what what is that when you're doing it on the radio? When both queer politics and feminist movements have this very long history of visual metaphors, of visibility, mm. of coming out, right? What does it mean when that's being done only through sound? So mm-hmm. that's what I'm really interested in exploring uh, over the next year anyways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love this focus on the intergenerational, which is such a necessary and often fraught conversation when we are talking about, I think, both feminist and queer intergenerational solidarity and divisions. Mm-hmm. I've been talking a lot with other queer and feminist friends about this feeling sometimes that I think because we are so invested in a constant movement towards greater liberation that there is a tendency to, as I usually put it, eat our mothers. Yeah, that's that's a great way to say it. Which is to say that in order to articulate our greater liberation, it often involves a kind of disavowal of those who came before us. And we're seeing that playing out in Vancouver in all kinds of complex ways, especially around the surprisingly vocal turf movement in this city and the way that a trans-inclusive queerness and a trans-inclusive feminism feels this need to break with what is not necessarily, but is often seen as a generational divide. I think that's important to, to distinguish that it isn't necessarily a generational divide, but that's often how we understand it as a like, oh, those are like le- lesbians from the 70s hated trans women. And so we distinguish ourselves from that generation. And the figuring out ways to find forms of continuity and to build dialogue, like intergenerational dialogue, feels like really vital work right now to try to sort of, I don't know, figure out how we can find different ways to relate to the generations who came before us that are not a sort of burn it down build something new out of the ashes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a big part of the issue with the waves metaphor in feminism, that Mm. everything comes in waves, but we have this first, second, and third, and fourth, and arguably fifth at this point in the way that we're micro-breaking it down um, into almost standpoints or initiatives. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, part of what I'm really fascinating in doing is taking a step back and asking, well, 
We can't just simply dismiss all of the work that lesbian feminists in particular did in the 70s. Um, Yes, there are awful stories. There are dark histories, but we need to open those up and see what else was going on. Well, why was Mm -hmm. this happening at that time? What are the other stories? What were some of the wins that were coming out of that? And how, how was that politics influencing everyone who came in the decade or wave after? And then now as well, when we start to see this rising of queer feminist work and people taking up even lesbian feminist and lesbian separatist identities, which I found very fascinating, um, <laughs> or using the term sapphist, for instance, <laughs> that right? I haven't come across, oh, but uh. it's new. If you go on Tumblr, um, <laughs> oh Tumblr, <laughs> fucking Tumblr! Everything I know about gender and sexuality, I definitely learned from Tumblr use. <laughs> yeah, so the term "sapphist" is there, uh, and it's mm-hmm. making a comeback, which is fascinating to me. So there is this kind of desire I think people have of looking back, of trying mm-hmm. to understand where these movements came from, um, and reconnecting to feminists who maybe are from older demographics. And this, you know, it's not unheard of when we think of the way that we interact with our grandparents or elders in our lives. This should also be happening within queer and feminist communities so that we can understand what people went through and what people experienced before we got to the point we're at now. How did we come to a moment where we have, you know, queer same-sex marriage in Canada when we have something like the Me Too movement that didn't just spring up overnight. No. Okay. I want to talk more about what queer production sounds like, but just a brief aside about intergenerational and queer mm. ancestors. Have you watched The Secret Love yet? No, it's on my it's on my my list on Netflix. <laughs> oh. I mean, I strongly recommend it. And I also cried so much yeah it's the my social media feed is full of people talking about how emotional it is and i'm like i need to be in yeah. a space where I'm yeah you gotta to be ready this. i was not ready i thought it was just gonna be like fun like ooh, a leak of their own like <laughs> look at this old-timey lesbians um but it was a full-on like five kleenex situation mm-hmm. it was it was intense but also really exciting to get even this micro history told through a queer lens I was chatting with a friend, uh, friend of the show, Sonera Geisler, about it afterwards. And she was like, isn't it interesting that the two women being described met in Moose Jaw and moved to Chicago in the 40s because it was safer? And she was like, what narratives do we hear about Chicago in the 40s? It's never that it is a safe place to be. It's always articulated as this like den of iniquity, this wildly dangerous city. But all of our definitions of like what makes a city safe are really, really different when you're like a couple of lesbians in the 40s mm-hmm. doing something that is literally illegal. You know, all of a sudden the big city becomes safe for you in a different way. And it's just like even in that small register, the way that we understand reality historically becomes so, so different when we're offered different lenses on it. Anyway. No, completely. So Reco- I recommend I've uh, I've listened to quite a bit of the lesbian show so far. Um, there's a big collection of it as part of the archives of lesbian oral testimony, which is mm-hmm. an initiative by Elise Chenier here at Simon Fraser. 
And then there's a new big collection at the Vancouver Archives, which I'm very excited about. But listening back to these shows, there is so much fascinating history and uh, interesting, very queer sound moments like uh, sexual innuendo commentary over a lesbian baseball game at the gay games, you know, or yeah. uh, tap dancing competition on air. Um, <laughs> and then like... Uh, so many of the lesbians <laughs> I know love tap dancing. Can you explain that to me? I don't know. Maybe it's connected <laughs> to this uh, 70s and 80s fact. Okay. I don't know, right? Right. And then other moments like Valentine's call-in shows where women could call in anonymously and the host would read out a love letter to the person that they were having a crush on if they wanted to stay anonymous. And so we get all of these kind of historical points. And we also get a lot of discussions around like working class lesbians and black feminist lesbianism. And they also do discussions on global issues and transgender issues um, and solidarities as well throughout the LGBTQ community and the poor community because they were also rooted in community radio stations. Yeah. So making those kind of connections and hearing those stories really does question and rewrite the histories that we understand. That's so exciting. History is great. Right. What a fun discipline. <laughs> media history is the best. So you mentioned that you're interested in like, what does queer media sound like? Mm -hmm. What does queer production sound like? Um, and that was like, it really struck me even when you were describing like how podcasting and radio sound differently because they are produced differently. Mm -hmm. So have you started to hypothesize what queer production sounds like? Yeah, it's tough, but there's already some examples that have come out of my kind of initial research into the subject. And some of them are when you're looking back at community radio, those moments where you can imagine someone flipping through the dial and then all of a sudden they're hearing two lesbians talk very sexually about another woman playing baseball. That kind of a moment is really very queer, very queer <laughs> in a way that... Yep in a way that isn't the same as podcasting, because podcasting, in contrast, someone's going to be choosing to listen to that show. Mm. So then how are those produced in a more, to create a more queer audio experience? And I think um, shows like Asking For It that Caitlin Prest and the collective at Mermaid Palace are, are making mm -hmm. are a great example of some of the queer feminist work that we're going to see moving forward, where we have lesbian, queer, and feminist protagonists, mm -hmm. and taking on more difficult subjects like mm. same-sex relationship abuse and domestic abuse, but in ways that really bring us into the spaces in new ways. So it's not just a voiceover conversation or a journalistic style of production. It's actually taking mm -hmm. us into those rooms with the couple, um, mm. hearing both sounds of violence but also sounds of intimacy and sex in mm -hmm. a podcast between two women right creates yeah. these very queer audio experiences that we aren't used to hearing and really mm -hmm. podcasting is perfect for creating that kind of experience in contrast to radio because little coos from a woman for instance or uh soft crying is something that's mm -hmm. much harder to communicate because of the compression um, and way that radio mm. is broadcasted in contrast to a podcast. 
Oh, that's that's super interesting. I just finished listening to the second season of Within the Wires. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I which started is also, listening to that. It's so good. It's it's really good. And the second season has all of these examples of both crying and also intentional silences mm-hmm. where the narrator is supposed to be recording these audio guides to art that was created by her former lover. And she begins to cry and then just stops talking for lengths of time. And as I was, I was walking around and listening and I was like, oh, this is impossible on any other medium because you can't, there's an intentionality to listening and a kind of duration to listening with podcasting where like, I will sit here and listen to a solid minute of silence because I understand you have put it here intentionally Mm -hmm. and that will register to me. Whereas if you're flipping, I mean, I imagine if you're flipping through the radio, because when have I flipped through the radio in my adult life? The answer is zero times. <laughs> but I imagine if you're flipping through the radio and come across a station where there is a minute of silence, you will assume it's just not a station and keep going. Yeah, exactly. You'll assume something's going wrong and go somewhere else. Yeah. 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 yeah moments like that. And um, there's also work with groups like Constellations. I don't know if you've heard of, uh, of Constellations, but it was originally mm-hmm. um, an installation, sound art installation in Toronto. And then it was put online as a series of podcasts. And it's really sound artists and podcast and audio producers making these pieces that kind of uh, push the boundaries in the way that we understand radio and podcast production and asking mm-hmm. really intimate questions. So One of the episodes, for instance, takes us in to um, a session where the audio producer is learning how to sing and -hmm. and vocalize, but it takes us into these very intimate spaces in a way that sounds quite different because we're hearing the room, we're hearing overlap of time. So I think that's another way that we can think about a queering of audio and a queering of media is playing with our sense of time and space. Mm in a way that we don't necessarily hear in traditional linear radio formats, right? It's because radio is is traditionally produced as very linear. You tune in at six o'clock, it's going to be the six o'clock news. You tune Mm -hmm. in at five, we've got the traffic, right? And it's cyclical as well. So it's always pre-produced and cyclical every day versus podcasting can really play with those senses of time and space in a new way. Yeah, so this listening to you talk about production in this way, I mean, you are a great example of a scholar who comes into their work with a kind of experiential knowledge because of your background in audio production. Mm-hmm. And I imagine your knowledge of audio production heightens your ability to understand what you're hearing and the kinds of deliberate choices that people are making when they are producing radio or podcasts. But I wonder if sort of before spoken web and the other work we're doing together if you had been thinking about you know sharing some of your research as a podcast like is that an impulse that you have given that you both work on and think about sound and are also a producer yourself yeah and it's hard so (laughs) (laughs) it's very very it's a very different experience because when you're writing academic work you're writing with an academic audience in mind versus when Mm -hmm. you're creating something like a podcast or a radio documentary you really want to make it as accessible as possible and that can often be difficult to do Mm -hmm. um, as you know from making this Uh show (laughs) 
<laughs> and working with spoken web. So I actually, I attempted to do that for a first time during my MA. So I made a three-piece radio documentary that went with my MA work. I think the first part is really good. And I think then I got too heady and it's really still for an <laughs> academic audience in the second yeah. and third part. Um, but my my goal is to try and do that again with my PhD work. So mm-hmm. radio documentary, audio documentary is part of the process that I'm going through. So I'll be keeping an audio diary as a feminist reflexive method. Um, throughout my research process. So after each interview, I'll sit down with my microphone and kind of detox and have a bit of a confessional (laughs) moment um, and work through my material that way. And so I am trying to think through, and I think working with Spoken Web and thinking about the way that we can translate academic work into something that's more publicly accessible and just more enjoyable, to be honest. Sometimes reading mm-hmm. a lot of uh, large manuscripts and articles can can be a lot if you want to grasp a subject. I, I know I'm more of an oral learner. So thinking about yeah. the ways that we can use some of these production techniques, and especially mm-hmm. when you're thinking about sound and in something intimate like queer experience and queer identity, how can I marry these two things together in a way that really makes it useful and enjoyable and also informative, right? At the end of the day, (laughs) getting those ideas across is a big part of it. And so I I do think Spoken Web is doing some interesting work that way. And it's also interesting as part of working on this project to see the places that are challenges and the places that come more easily and maybe whose work lends itself to that kind of translation or mobilization more readily, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are, there are different kinds and levels of translation that are required for different kinds of fields. And there is, I, I've been finding myself, I'm trying to relearn how to write right now mm. because I was rigorously trained how to write over a decade of education in a very particular way with a very narrow audience in mind and have come to the conclusion that I personally don't particularly want to write to that audience. I mean, I don't want to exclude that audience either, but I don't want that to be my primary audience. But the ease with which I produce scholarly prose at this point is such that it is like physically difficult (laughs) to produce anything else, that I have to stop myself and be like, nope, okay, nobody understands any of these words. And also that sentence was 14 lines long. Why are you doing this? <laughs> a friend of mine once said, I write as though I'm challenging myself to fit every preposition into every sentence. <laughs> Which was rude, but true. And podcasting for me, especially sort of over these different projects, has been a way to try to find a different voice as a scholar. That rather than starting with the work and then trying to translate it, by actually doing the thinking through this medium, I'm finding the ability to to articulate a different kind of scholarly voice with a different audience and a different conversation in mind. So I love that idea of like keeping the audio journal as you go, of, of building sound into the process itself so that it's not a sort of once all the research is done and I've written all of the papers and I know everything and exactly how I want it to sound – then I will translate it. It's like, how do I actually think when I think out loud? Mm-hmm. Because we think differently, don't we, when we think out loud? I mean, I know I do. <laughs> yeah. And and sound does bring this entirely new element into it. Part of 
The other sound element that I'm bringing into my process is actually playing archival clips for my interviewees to kind of evoke Mm. some of those memories and experiences back. And I think that's part of what excited me about the Spoken Web Project, too, is thinking about how can we use sound archives in new ways? How can we take all of these fascinating stories and voices out of places that are usually exclusively for researchers and librarians and archivists, and bring them to the public, take them out of the dusty box and into the (laughs) digital space, right? Um, And create this kind of time overlap. So there is some, some relationship between maybe me listening to a lesbian's experience in 1982 when Mm -hmm. I'm listening in 2020. And I think we have, you know, this very long history of sound recordings not being archived properly, um, not being given the same value, but we're seeing a huge change in the last couple of years. And it's definitely exciting times for sound scholars. Do you think that there's anything behind this this sonic turn in the humanities? Why are we suddenly taking sound seriously? <laughs> I mean, this is a great question. There's a couple uh, theories behind it. One of them being that we're finally really used to the visual. We're bombarded mm-hmm. with it every day. The novelty is kind of wearing off. And so we're actually finding ourselves retreating into sound in new ways that we never had before. We're wearing headphones as we commute to curate our own spaces, to listen mm-hmm. um, and create the, these experiences for ourselves in ways that we never had before. Listening used to be very communal. Now it's very personal. So it's creating new connections and new relationships to sound that we didn't necessarily have before, which I think I think gives more value or at least perceptive value to some of these recordings from the past. Spoken Web is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found at universities across Canada. This episode was a special crossover with Secret Feminist Agenda. To learn more about that podcast, check out secretfeministagenda.com. Our producers this month were me, Hannah McGregor, and of course, our podcast project manager, Stacey Copeland. A special thank you to Stacey for taking the time to talk with me. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit spokenweb.ca and subscribe to the Spoken Web podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. If you love us, let us know. Rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. We'll see you back here next month for another episode of the Spoken Web podcast. Stories about how literature sounds.